Hi, everyone. Welcome back to another episode of Get Real with Mama Moines. I am your host, Emily Moines. And today I am joined again by Jen. And Jen was on the podcast, I think, when we were talking about chapter two. Yes. But we had, I had an overwhelming response to that podcast and to your story, Jen, that I actually couldn't wait to get you back on. I think so many people were able to resonate with your story. Uh, I actually just posted on my Instagram a story last night, um, a comment that one of the listeners left on my Instagram saying that she felt both triggered and validated at the same time. And that she regrets listening to it at night because she tends to be one of those people that just buries everything and doesn't, and doesn't talk about it. So let's talk about it. Today, we're going to discuss chapter four of the book. And again, I'm going to open the floor up to you, Jen, because I think that you, um, again, can really relate to chapter four, which is the never ending breakup and makeup game, which is so prevalent um, in dysfunctional relationships. So I know I went back four times after having left four times. Um, and how many times did you go back, Jen? Um, I went back at least five times. Um, and some of those times were even after the police had been called and had come to the home. And some of them were even after, you know, having, having had to go seek medical um, help for injuries to my body, I still went back. And in my case, a lot of my going back was his son from a previous relationship at the time um, and wanting to make sure he was okay and him contacting me um, as a child and missing me and wanting me to go back to the home, which I think a lot of it was my ex manipulating his child to try to get me to go back to the house. I don't think the child would have had the ability to, you know, pick up a phone and call me in that way. Um, and then I think the other part of it was once I had our child that we had together, um, it was the fear of leaving my son alone with him. Um, if we separated permanently and his, you know, threats of taking me to court and taking our son away from me, um, and knowing that, it, when I was in the home, I was able to be a buffer between the, um, between his abusive behavior and the kids and keeping his kids kind of shielded from it. Um, where when I wasn't there, I wouldn't be able to see what was happening in the home and be able to protect my son at the time my son was, I left at 18 months. So my son was very young and unable to articulate what would be happening in the home, but he was seeing the yelling and the screaming and those kind of things. Where did you, when you say you left the home, you physically left the home? Yeah. So I left, we, when I first started dating him, we were living in his um, prior home that he had when he was married to his other wife. And then we purchased a home together. So I left um, that home where he owned, I left that home at least three times and I left our home that we bought together at least twice. Um, and where would you go? Um, I always go back to my parents' place every single time then. But the final time I left, the police moved me to a woman's shelter for safety. So I ended up leaving even the city to go to a woman's shelter in a different town. Um, and I lived there for a while and then um, moved back with my parents for about a week and then got my own rental place after that. So when you were living with your parents after having left multiple times, did your parents 
and I know that you're Portuguese and I know that I know the conditioning and the dynamic that plays in a, in a, in a stereotypical old world Portuguese home. Did your parents ever at any time and did, and if they did, did you even listen? Um, like, what are you doing? Why are you going back? You can um, stay here as long as you want. Did they yeah, say they, that and did you listen? They, they did definitely try that. Um, particularly my mom, my mom is more of the, my dad sends my mom up to do the, the talking with me. Um, they definitely tried that. They definitely tried to make uh, my living arrangement with them even before I had my son. So when it was just me moving back home with my cats, like they tried to make the home as like comforting as I could. So like my dad went ahead and got the internet at his house so that I would have um, access to the internet. Like it was weird things that he would do that he would try to make me feel like, okay, you need to stay home. And I remember coming home with a number of my items. Like I lived out of a suitcase when I lived at his house um, and I would bring the suitcase home with the cats home and everything. And they would make the environment very like comforting to me, but my sisters and my, I have two, I have a sister, older sister and two older brothers. They really kind of um, cycled around me and tried to get me to stay home and try to give me advice. Um, but it was really hard. And I think that you could probably speak to this too. Like no matter what anyone says to you, it doesn't matter because you've been so programmed that you feel like complete garbage, that you feel like you're at fault for why you broke up. Yep, you also yep. feel like complete garbage about yourself to the point where you don't have an, enough self-esteem to say, There's you know, I deserve, I deserve to be it. treated. Yeah. I deserve to be treated better. So I just, I felt like I deserve this in some way. And, um, the more that they cycled around me and tried to like make me feel better about myself, the more I just felt like, you know, I can't live without this person. I need to be there for this person. And because he was so broken when I would leave and, you know, he would call me and he would threaten to hurt himself and he would threatened, you know, he would talk about how his son was so devastated um, and that I had broken up his family and how his parents were devastated. Like one of the times it was all all my fault. Everything was my fault. And so on either end, I was either going to disappoint my family by going back with this person, or I'm going to devastate this person and his family. So I felt like I was very torn. And so the easiest thing for me was to go back and try again. And but did you, did you ever at any time actually trivial, trivial, <laughs> trivialize the extent of the abuse with your family or with your friends? Because I know that a lot of uh, people that are in this situation uh, do minimize and trivialize and they start to rationalize, you know, like he's not always bad. And, you know, it's, you got to take the good with the bad and everybody has their ups and downs. And so you really don't really um, portray the extent of what's really happening at home. I I definitely did that. Like I covered up bruises at work. Um, like my best friend worked with me and she worked in the office next to me. We'd have coffee every morning and she, like, you know, I put makeup over my eyes when I had a black eye. So she wouldn't notice, um, with my parents, it was a little bit, um, easier because I would never feel comfortable telling my mom, you know, what was actually happening in the home. Um, but the one time that the police were called, uh, my brother, 
uh, came back to the, my parents' house with me. And I remember laying in the basement and just bawling. And he, I, I let out some things. Like I told them some of the things that were happening in the home. And his thing was, you know, you can't go back to this. Like you need to stay here. And he lived down the street from my parents. And he was like, you need to stay here and not go back. But I definitely, I, yeah, you hide things. You don't, I never told my sisters or my sister or my brothers or my parents the full extent of anything that happened. And the first time that my sister heard everything was when he was on trial. And I, um, after she had testified, cause I couldn't tell her things so that it wasn't me, you know, collaborating with her. So I didn't tell her what had happened. And it was after she had testified, um, she sat in the courtroom and she was able to hear some of the things that had happened and some of the allegations. So, you know, it, it was completely rocked her and she was devastated. And I think I gave her some post-traumatic stuff, like because of listening to all of it, but. Um, so, so no. when the, sorry, I'm just going to go back. Yeah. So when the police were called to the home, yeah. um, he was in fact arrested. The first time he was not arrested. So he was a police officer. So they had his two buddies came to the house and the officer told me to calm down and stop crying. Um, oh, this, this infuriates me. The officer did not want to see any of the injuries on my body, didn't ask me, just told me to calm down. And then on top of it, which was still to this day, as shocks me, you know, they had me they, they boxed me into his driveway. So I couldn't leave his driveway. So I had to sit there while he's telling the police, you know, you're not coming in my house. You're not going to talk to me. I just want her to go him saying that I'm crazy, that we had broken up and that I'm, I'm crying because we broke up and I'm sad and, you know, really minimizing what had happened in the home. And then when I finally got to drive away with the female officer, I went in my own car and she went to a church parking lot with me to wait because they made me call my brother because they were worried about my safety driving home. So they so were worried. Brother- okay. So they were worried about your, this is this. Okay. I, you know, I, I can't, I just, I fucking can't. I had a brief conversation last night with the best friend of Amanda Lyons. Amanda okay, Lyons yeah. was murdered in Windsor um, by her husband. And they, the body still has not been located. They believe that he, then after he killed her, he jumped into the Detroit river and they still have not, not located, um, the body. So her best friend is a police officer. Okay. Um, who I spoke to. And she said that the system as a police officer agreed that the system is so failed is so failed and it is failing so many, you know, I always say women, but honestly, after watching the, um, the Johnny Depp, um, and, uh, heard, I can't remember her first name. Oh my God. His wife, ex-wife yep. after watching the, the, the court, the trial that's on right now, it's not just women. Okay. So yeah, yeah, absolutely. women that are going through this, it's not just women that are suffering abuse and narcissistic abuse, but the system does fail often. And it's interesting that you say to me now that they took you away because they feared for your safety. Yep. But that doesn't align because they're taking you away and fearing for your safety, but still do absolutely nothing about why they were called to the house in the first place. You know, doesn't get arrested. They were they were afraid for my safety because they were afraid I was going to hurt myself because I was crying because I was so devastated by the breakup of, of uh, this relationship. So that's why they pulled me away. And okay, then, so now this, sorry, again, yeah, uh, yeah. Oh, this just, so now this again, sounds like the Gabby Petito case. Yeah. That's they why were that afraid video for her mental me. health because she was scared, crying, hysterical, shaking, hyperventilating. He had just assaulted her. 
So yep. she was feeling all those things. And that's exactly what they said, what the cops said in their, in their write-up that they were afraid for her. She had mental health issues. Yep. It's, it's crazy. They ended up, so there's a 911 tape, obviously, of when I call the police when I'm in the house and it got played in court. So I hadn't heard it since that night, obviously, like since I had said it, but there are things that I whispered to the dispatcher, like you don't know him and it's not going to be okay because he took the phone and was super calm saying everything is fine. She's just sad because we broke up. But then as soon as I start disclosing things, he hangs up on the dispatch. So, yeah. So when they... When they arrived, Tom, cool, collected, hyper yeah. compliant with the yeah. police when they come. And then when I, um, when I went to the parking lot with this officer, I tried to tell her what, what was happened, what had happened in the house. And she told me, it's okay. You don't need to talk. You can just close your window and told me to close the window of my car. So I knew right then, you know, not only had she called him by his first name, um, when she arrived <laughs> at the house, but then now she's telling me to close my window. So I just stopped talking. But later on, when we were in the trial, um, I found out that the dispatcher who had taken the call had said, you know, that I, she believed something was wrong and she was concerned for my safety, but the officers had put my file as mental health. So there's codes that they use. They had decided I was a mental health person because I was crying and hysterical on the phone. How else would someone act when they have just been thrown down a flight of stairs and the person is abusing them and ripping the phone out of their hand and hiding the key so you can't leave? Like how else would a person act? And and this is where I think that the, the system, the, 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 the police departments, need better training yeah. they need to be able to pick up the signs and that is so you know again I'm going to go back to the Gabby Petito case because I watched it incessantly while it was happening like when they pulled them over and that if I had been on that scene I'm, I would say this is a classic 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 like like narcissistic abuse or, or domestic abuse 101 the yeah. perpetrator is calm cool collected Again, hyper compliant, super polite, has is totally composed. The abused person is literally in a state of shock. Yeah. They are in a state of shock. They are completely um, like you said, they're they're irrational, they're they're scared, they're they can't think straight, they they don't make sense. And so they're the person that is problematic. They're the person that has the mental dis disorder, whatever. And that is so common. So why don't police officers know this? Why aren't they trained to look for this? They're fist pumping. Yeah. The abuser who actually ends up. Yeah. yeah. Literally, they, they, they literally did the same thing with him. They went into, they let him run the show. So when he was finally, um, able to let them in the house, they went in the house and spoke to him, but not until he was ready because he was in the house fixing all the things that had been knocked off the walls. And yes. he was a police officer. He knew exactly. what they'd be yes. looking for in the home. Right. Yeah. So yeah. they, they allowed him all that time while, and I didn't know any of that. Obviously I had driven away, so I didn't know what was happening. Um, but yeah, yeah, I think with that cycle of going back, you know, when I look back at it, I think I kept on going back because I was trying to, I'm not a person who gives up on relationships. I'm a person who doesn't give up on people. And so I felt like, you know, I believed him when he said he would get better and he would, we tried counseling and um, I believed that, you know, he didn't mean to do these things and that he had, it was my fault because I had triggered him by, you know, not buying the bottle of wine that he was expecting to have at the house or whatever. And he'd always bring everything back to past relationships he had had that had hurt him and how, 
that's why he was so triggered by certain things that I was doing. And so it's, but, and so I believed all of that. So I went back all of those times, but what I would say is, you know, having, you talked about my family and, you know, me listening to them, what I would say is, you know, if you're in a, if you're listening to the podcast and you know, somebody who's in the cycle, I think things that you should think about are don't vilify the partner at all. Um, just listen, because the more you vilify them, the more in my mind, every time my sister said, you know, he's such an ass and he's abusive, the more I felt that what he was telling me was the truth, which was my family didn't support our relationship. And so you going back home isn't helping us like you need to stay with me and work through this. So just listen, but don't pass judgment. Uh, do not tell the person to leave. <laughs> I, that would not, didn't work with me at least. And I don't know, you could speak to that as well. I, I think letting them know that you will be there if they make that decision. Um, but telling them you need to leave the situation over and over again, that person has been having that other person, the abuser, tell them what to do the entire relationship. So now you're telling them what to do and they have no autonomy to make their own decisions. So being supportive of whatever they want to do and telling them that you'll be there for them, I think is way more important. Um, yeah. remind the person who's been abused, I'm going to call them the survivor, like, cause I don't like calling them the victim, but like reminding that person of the good times you had together. Um, but not making them feel guilty about not spending time with you because they already feel guilty for not spending time with you because that abuser has completely tried to get you away from them in the first place. Um, if you, can diary or log things that conversations you're having with that person that are about the abuse. Like one of the things that really helped in my situation was my sister kept every text message I ever sent her ever. Um, My best, my best friends kept my voicemails. You know, I called my best friend once in the bathroom when I was locked in a bathroom hiding from him and I left her a voicemail crying because she didn't answer. And she was able to have that voicemail to play in court like that really helped me a lot because it showed that, you know, a year before I ever was able to, you know, get the courage to come forward with it. I was already like in that abusive situation. But my, my sister and my friends, they diaried and logged, you know, I saw Anna has a black eye. Um, Anna has this and they, they kept all of that. So that can be really helpful. Even if you're not articulating that you're noticing these things on the person, I think those things, I, I, you know what, I think I need to have you come back on again now on how to prepare for trial, because these points are all so invaluable. I know that with my particular situation, my lawyer told me to, as soon as, so we, so I, I filed for divorce and then we actually had to live together for nine months. Yep. Um, and it was horrible. And then my lawyer finally said, this moment he steps foot in the house, you need to turn the record button on, on your phone. Yep. Second, he walks through that door because I wanted temporary, I wanted exclusive possession of the matrimonial home. And I kept saying to her, it's like, it's, it's so toxic that it's so abusive. I, we cannot live together, but he wouldn't leave. And, and then that's when I like, I dug in, I doubled down and I'm not leaving. I've left five times, four times. I'm not leaving. And those recordings were, were imperative. Those recordings is what made the whole, the entire difference when it came to um, getting a a court order to have him removed from the house. Yeah, that's a great tip. So I I do want to touch back on that and maybe I'll have you back again. But 
this, this whole chapter is about the the, the breakup and, and the makeup. So you kept breaking up, you kept making up, as did I. What was it for you then that 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 came to that's it? There's no makeup, there's no breakup and makeup anymore. This is the last and final breakup. This is it. Like, what was the deciding factor for you that you're not doing this anymore? For me, it was my daughter. Yeah. Um, but for you, what was it that okay, you've you've done, you've been around the block here five times. What was it that made you finally break that cycle once and for all? Um, that day that I left, um, it was kind of an accumulation of a bunch of things, but he tried to push me down a flight of stairs with my son in my arms. And then, um, so that was the first thing. Then I was trying to leave with my son to take him to daycare. And he, the car seat was in the base of the car seat was in his truck and he refused to go and help me put it back into my car and I didn't know how to attach it on my own. So he refused. He kicked um, the car seat with my son in it and um, told me to fuck off and go to my, because he was always really angry about me going to my parents' house. So fuck off and get out of the house. Um, Do what you want. You always run home to mommy and daddy. So when he kicked the car seat, my son started crying, obviously. So he left the home and I ended up going to across the street to the neighbor to get them to help me put the car seat in. I dropped my son off at daycare and we had counseling that day. Um, and when we were at counseling, I could tell the counselor went at him really at 10 you, had counseling. you, you and the, you and this guy that just kicked the yeah. with your baby, you both. Went yeah. To so we were, we had counseling that day. And when we went there, the counselor went really hard at him about his behaviors and his actions. And um, the counselor did not know about all the abuse, but just based on his behaviors in counseling and some of the emails he had been receiving from my ex in between the appointment because the counselor wanted to meet with us each separately. My ex refused because I wasn't allowed to be alone with a man. And my ex refused and told him that he was a pervert and that he was inappropriate. Why would you want to meet with her alone? And he went at the counselor. So the counselor went at him in the counseling appointment about, you know, how these, um, the way he was acting was very abusive. And I could see my ex, he has this tell when he's getting really angry where he clenches and unclenches his fists over and over again. So he was doing that during the appointment and he was grinding his back teeth. So I knew he was getting more and more angry. And when we left the counseling appointment, I did my usual, which was to try to make him feel better and say like, it's okay. Like we're going to go home and have a good night. And I tried to like calm him down. And um, I went to pick up my son at daycare. And when I got home, he was loading a duffel bag in the back of his car. And I could tell that it was, his gun was in there. His shotgun was in there. He didn't have shotgun bullets at our house, but I knew that at the at his work that they did have shotgun bullets. And so I was worried about him either hurting himself or coming home and hurting me. And we lived in a kind of um, home that backed onto a forest. And so I was concerned because he had gone back there and watched into the house to watch me when he'd been on shift. So I was worried he's going to go back there and do something. And I just had this feeling and you know, the back of my hair, the hair on the back of my neck stood up and I just had this feeling in my gut, like I need to get out of here. So when he left, um, I called my sister and I said, I'm done. I need out of this house. And so she came over and held my son while I packed up just a few things, which were his clothes, his favorite blanket, um, some shirts and clothes for me. And we left, I called his supervisor and said, I was worried about him harming himself and that he had left the home with this gun. And, um, 
and that was the day that I said I was done. So when the police called me the next day to come in for an interview, I went in and I never looked back after that. Good for you. It, it was the feeling that, you know, my son isn't safe in this home anymore. I'm not safe in this home anymore. Isn't that, isn't that, you know, that's interesting because I've done, I've talked about this before and I've had people ask, ask me the same question. And isn't it interesting that we, um, you know, we can take all the abuse and we can take, you know, the, just all the crap, but when it comes to, cause for me, it was my daughter and it sounds like for you, yeah. it really was concerned for the safety of your yeah, son, more son. than yourself. Yeah. So it's interesting how we don't value, I guess, our selves or our, you know, lives. I mean, in your case, he you had a gun, like my God. Um, so, but it takes your child having, you know, pushing sort of you to make that last you know drastic and final decision that this needs to end it needs to end right here and right now I know that I know that um in codependent relationships and in, in relationships that you're in an abusive cycle statistically women again and men because it's not just women do leave um I think up to five it takes up to about five times before they do leave for good. Um, also, what happens when you're in a dysfunctional relationship, a relationship that is codependent? I don't know if this happened for you, but when you have these massive blow-ups or you end up leaving, you literally, it's almost like you are in, it's almost like a drug addict who goes into withdrawals. You need that high again. So you are at your lowest of lows. You're now, you're, you're, you're gone. You think it's over. You're scared. You know, you're afraid. You just feel like shit. And you just want everything to be good again. And what happens with both parties at this time is you start to what's known as romanticizing the relationship. And that's when you start to um, rationalize the relationship when you start to make excuses and more importantly when for some fucked up reason all of a sudden all you can think about is those really great times you had with your partner because I'm sure there was good yeah. times you wouldn't have been there you wouldn't have married oh yeah no absolutely there was there good, times, good yeah. times and everything just comes to the forefront and it's like that drug addict who needs to get that drug but in the relationship you just need to get back together because yep. when you get back together, it's euphoria again. It's great sex again. It's, you know, everything momentarily is great again. And so there's constantly that, that um, back and forth, the back and forth, the back and forth, very unhealthy, is really prevalent in dysfunctional relationships there, where there's abuse because it's the cycle um, because they hoover you back in. And they're, they're also, they've lost their... You know, especially I, I, I talk a lot about narcissistic abusive relationships because that's really sort of what I've studied, but you have been his supply for so long and he doesn't want to lose that great source of supply. So he's going through the same cognitive thoughts as well. So yeah. he's going to do everything he can to get you back and you now feel so special and so validated because, oh my God, he's doing everything he can just to get me back. When yeah. in reality, nothing nothing has been resolved. No. And then you yeah, go we, back into the cycle of, um, of insanity. You know, I think it was Freud. And I start that in my book that 
that the definition of insanity is just repeating the same thing over and over and over and over again and, and, and always getting the same result. And that's yeah. when the abusive the cycle of abuse is like in a relationship. You keep repeating it over and over and over again. Nothing gets resolved, nothing gets fixed, and you're stuck there forever until hopefully, hopefully, before it's too late, um, you know, you you come to your senses and you realize, like for me, I feel like I almost had an epiphany. Um, and you want better for yourself and you want better for your child. And then you come to the understanding that you deserve better. You are enough. You, 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 you know, because you, what makes me so sad is the stories like Amanda Lyons. Yep. She didn't leave. And she now has three little, little children with no father and no mother. And so when you're in an abusive cycle, where you, if you are playing, if you're listening right now and you are playing the breakup and makeup game on a continuously, it is not healthy. It is not normal. It is not healthy. And you will never ever be able to break the cycle until you like realize that. Like you have to sort of stand in your truth and go, what the fuck? Like, this is enough. This is never going to end. Because how many times do you need to go through that? You went through it five times? Yeah. When is it going to change? It's not going to change, people. It's not going to change. No, and I think um, about breaking the cycle for me too, it was about, you know, he he blamed a lot of his behaviors on, you know, his, his upbringing with his parents and with his dad in particular, he blamed a lot about his dad. And for me, it's about my son. I don't want, I, I broke the cycle for him too, because he's growing up in a home that he's not with witnessing any domestic violence. He's not seeing men mistreat me at all. I have male friends that I spend time with and he sees how a male female interaction should happen without yelling and screaming so if his dad does get into a relationship with somebody eventually and he does go through that same cycle of becoming abusive which he will because he's never owned his actions and he's never taken responsibility for what he's done um what did he least... sorry what um sorry just, uh, so you went to trial yep um and what so what was the outcome and if you say he's never taken accountability for his actions but did yeah, the no. law make him take accountability yeah so he went he went into custody and he was put on a really long probation term which um i would fully suggest to anybody jail does nothing to help fix a person who's abusive it doesn't um but probation terms do give you protection because they give you a radius to keep that person away from you they protect your child in the sense that their safe space of their home with with you because you are their safe space is protected hang so, on but 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 okay i'm gonna i'm gonna challenge you a little bit on this because i've also read cases where there there's been restraining orders which i'm assuming is something yep. like a probationary period yeah yeah restraining order if you're dealing with someone who is who who potentially is dangerous and does have a mental um you know mental health uh, problem it's a piece of paper yeah, it is a piece of paper for sure. Um, a restraining order really does nothing to protect the victim because it ha you have to give all the addresses of the places you frequent in order for that restraining order to work. So for me, I don't want him to have my address of my home where I live now. So a restraining order would have been completely useless so to me. What's the difference between a restraining order and a probationary period? 
a pr probation order means he has a probation to, order. Sorry, yes. A probation order means he has a person, a human, who keeps track of them that he has got to meet with on a regular oh, basis. Okay, good to know. And then and on top of it, so he's got a probation officer that will be, you know, checking in with him, checking in with me as the as the survivor to make sure that me and my son are okay, to check in and keep him accountable that he's not communicating with me outside of the order. Um, that probation officer, if she sees actions or behaviors that are concerning, or she sees or I give her information about things that he's doing, she can breach him and put him back in custody on her own. And it's not me, the onus is taken off of me to be the person that's reporting him it's now her reporting him or him reporting him um and the probation has like you know it says any places that I frequent so if I frequent my home obviously I live here I don't have to give him the address he knows he can't come into this neighborhood except to pick up my child and then get the heck out so he can't come grocery shopping over in the grocery store by my house uh he can't go to you know my son's extracurriculars at the same time as me so we're never going to be at a soccer game at the same time together and is that how long is that order in place for Mine is as, as long as it can be, which is three years um, in Canada. Anyways, that's a, that's the longest length. But after that probation term is done, I can then file for a protection order. And that protection order will give me that same radius and it will give me that same thing. But he doesn't have that woman or that man as the probation officer. But it still gives me a radius away from him. And I would say having... Um, a third party do the exchanges of your child so that you don't have to see that person is the best way to prevent you from going back. I think if I didn't have a third party that is in between us exchanging our child, I probably would have gone back at the very beginning, even after he had been charged, because seeing him sad and upset, um, even though I was terrified of him because I knew he was very angry because I had gone forward and reported him. I, you know, his smell and the way that he acted and everything and the, his sadness, like started drawing me back in and I'd feel that's guilty. Yeah. And so that's having, romanticizing the relationship. Yeah. That's exactly so you, what I just spoke about. And it just everything about him, like I was still attracted to him, even though he was a horrible person. And um, even though I knew he was full of anger, but it also something that people don't really talk about is, the statistics about the safety of the woman in leaving those relationships, whether you leave for a day or whether you are at the point where you're leaving permanently, you're at the highest risk yes. of being injured or being killed or being um, abused further in those months after you leave because that person is has time to plot has time to plan what they're going to do and in the Amanda Lyons situation I don't know exactly what happened in her situation like you know, how much of a period of separation happened if they were even separated at that point. But I know that when I first left, that's why I went to the woman's shelter was because they said me being at my parents' house was putting me at risk and putting my family at risk by me being there. Yeah, and I was yeah. better off being behind cameras in a locked location away from him. Um, so I think that would be something I would suggest is, you know, have a third party for your exchanges of your child. So you don't have to see that person. I haven't seen him since court. So I haven't seen him in a year now in person. And do, you and feel, do you feel that in the last year that you are, do you, is there a sense of peace or are you sort yeah. of always looking over your shoulder? I, because I have to exchange my child with him and my child goes there, you know, I worry about my child being there and I worry about. That must be, that must be the worst. It is the worst. It's the worst feeling in the world. Now he's articulate and he can tell me what's happening when he was young and he couldn't speak. It was horrible. Now it's the 
preparation every time he comes back of the emotional upheaval that he's going to come back in. He either comes back full of anger or he comes back incredibly sad, not because he's leaving his dad, but because of what happened at his dad, his dad's screaming. Imagine being in a home where someone's screaming at you for two days, right? Or someone's questioning you about everything that's happening in mommy's house, like wanting to know everything that's happening in my home. And what's really important for me is I never vilify his dad. I never say anything negative about his dad, but I listen to what my son says and believe him when he comes home and he says, you know, dad said this and this and this, um, I believe him and I tell him, I believe him and I give him strategies. And that's why he's in counseling is to get strategies to build resilience to what's happening. But then he comes home to a safe space and coming home to a place where, you know, he doesn't have to, I never question him about anything that happens over there. I let him naturally tell me, I ask him standard things like I would at, at the end of a school day. How was your day? How was your weekend? Uh, what did you have for supper so that I don't, you know, make the same supper over here again. So he doesn't have chicken two days in a row. But besides that, I don't ask him what happens at his dad's house. Um, and he will naturally tell you, but when a child knows that they have safe space, and I also don't ever tell his dad the things that his, my son is telling me. So no, if my never, son's, no, never, never ever, because ever. my son gets punished for telling him. me. Yeah. Yeah. So I never tell him. I just, I log everything in a journal. I tell his counselor that he's meeting with when he says things at the school and discloses things at the school, the school discloses it back to the counselor. And we work with my child through it because the system is so broken, you know, family, children's services, children's aid, whatever it is called in the area where you're from. Um, they don't really protect the child unless he's physically being abused. They don't consider yeah. emotional abuse, anything. So him screaming at, you know, my son and him calling my son a liar and him, you know, going at him all the time about for information at my house doesn't bother them, but it is abuse and it does affect his psyche. So now it's building resilience for him so that he feels empowered and that he feels like when he comes back, he's safe here. And that's all that matters. Um, so I just spend my time when I'm away from him, trying to focus on what I'm going to do when he gets back, you know, saving up my energy. So when he gets back, if he's an emotional basket case, I'm emotionally, I, 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 you know, what? I give you so much credit. I really do because I, I can't imagine what it would be like to send off, to send your kid off, um, not knowing, you know, exactly what is happening, fearing that there is, you know, maybe not physical, but like psychological or mental or emotional abuse, it would literally, like, I, I, I think it, I think the cops would have to, like the SWAT team would have to come and take me away. It would be so hard to let them go. It would oh, be it, it so is hard. And that's why this system is so fucking broken. How is that benefiting the health and welfare and mental health of a child? How? Yeah, it's the system. And if, if you as the, especially if you have, like I have um, sole custody of my son. And if I don't send my child, he can call the police on me and say that because we have a police assistance clause, which I would recommend anybody get on their orders as well, which mm -hmm. is basically if the child isn't returned to your home when they're supposed to be, you can have a police officer go and get your child from that home and bring them back. But it also works in the reverse, right? So yeah. if I don't send my son, but so the thing is that you, you, the onus is on you as the custodial parent to make sure that the child goes. So it's very hard on days when my son was kicking and screaming and bawling and not wanting yeah. to go to say, you know, you have to go, but, you know, right. trying to build up the situation um, about, you know, you know, how long the time is. I try to tell him, I try to tell him about what we're going to do when he comes back. Um, 
And I'm just lucky that he plays video games now. And so that's what he sits and he goes into that video game world and he, that's where he spends his time. And then when he comes back, he's like a completely different kid, doesn't touch video games over here. But I think as a mom um, or a, a person in that situation, as a survivor, I think I would say you need to plan things, activities to help, you know, keep your time busy so that you don't you know, go crazy crazy while it, yeah. Thinking. So I just, I literally like plan stuff. Like I go and buy art supplies. So when he gets back, we can paint because he tells me a lot while he's painting or while he's drawing pictures. So I get him stuff to like occupy him when he gets back to like, you know, occupy his brain. I do laundry. I do all of the things. So when he comes back that first 24 hours, he's back. I'm fully committed to him. I'm throwing dinner in the crock pot so that I can just, you know, pull out dinner. I don't have to cook um, while he's here. You plan things ahead. And then I also think it's really good to take that time to figure out who you are now. Now that you're out of that relationship. So I journal a lot. I write down things that are on my thoughts, things that I, you know, who I am as a person outside of that guy and outside of my child, really as a human. And that's how I kind of spend my time before he comes back. And then when he's here, it's great. Then he's back with me. Well, I mean, I, I commend you. I really, really do. I think that you're not probably not alone. And thank God I never had to do any of that. Yeah. Thank Um, God. But I'm, I'm sure that there's a lot of, um, people listening that are in the same boat and uh, and I think you've offered all you know up a lot of tips and how to get through that because I can't even imagine that would be one of the hardest things to do I remember going through my um you know I remember going through my first divorce and and the father of my children is a great guy and a very hands-on parent and there wasn't any ever any abuse uh, between us but I do remember always thinking and feeling like I wonder, you know, I wonder if, you know, I wonder if he's getting frustrated and he's got to, you know, help with homework for the three kids and he's getting irritated and and you're just not there to be the buffer. So I commend you on that. I know that we got a little bit off track from the actual, I really wanted to spend the whole 45 minutes talking about why people make up and break break up and make up. But um, your story is so compelling and your story is actually so captivating that I think it's so important because it's all part and parcel it really is it all plays a role in the whole cycle um, of abuse and how it can go on for a very long time and it can get progressively worse the longer you stay in it the more times you do go back Um, and so I I just want to thank you so much for sharing your story um, and having the courage that you, I mean, he was a police officer and you reported him. That would be scary as hell because listen, they wield a lot of power. Um, and, uh, and they, they know, and they, like you said, he had a gun he had, they have access to, to weapons. So I commend you on that too. I mean, that took a lot of courage and I am so happy that you were able to share your story because maybe some, um, like even just, you know, the trial and, and, uh, and the court order of the, um, uh, the court order that you got, not the, um, the probation order. Yeah. Yes. The probation order. I never yeah. heard of it. Never heard of it. So I'm, ha- I'm so happy that you touched on that as well. So, um, we're running out of time, but, um, again, um, in the future, I would love to have you come back. Uh, I get a lot of questions and I get a lot of comments after I do a podcast like this. So if women do want more information on, you know, the court system, um, the trial itself, the expense of the trial, how did you get through the trial? Who's paying for the trial? How'd you find a lawyer? You know, 
all of that, if you're willing to come back. Yeah, for sure. Then I think that, you know, um, that would be again, really helpful. I, I, as soon as I do a podcast uh, and release it, I do go and check all the comments. Um, and I had a lot of people, like I said, with you, when you came on, we were discussing chapter two, um, that, uh, could really, really, um, relate to your story. But the biggest thing was they were still in it. Yeah. And they didn't have the courage and the resources to leave. And so listening to you, I think has really, um, you know, given them motivation or inspiration or help them empower them a, a, a little bit, you know, to, to, to want better, to want to create a better life for them and, and for their children. So thank you so, so much for sharing your story. And I absolutely would love to have you come back um, and we can get into more of the nitty gritties of, you know, exactly what it is like to go through the court system and to go through a trial because I'm yeah, sure a lot of women absolutely. would be even too afraid to, to conquer that. Okay, sounds good. Thank you so all right. much. And, all right, thanks, um, Emily. Thank you. Um, thank you for being a part of it. Thank you to all the listeners. Thank you for listening to another episode of Get Real with Mama Moines. Join us next week when um, we are actually talk. What's next week? Oh, the next five. week. The next week I'm going to be talking about hands up. That's actually hands up is, is literally like <laughs> when I got arrested. I got arrested for domestic abuse. Me. That's how broken the system is. So join us next week on Get Real with Mama Moines and I will talk to you then. Thanks, Jen. Bye. Bye.